Hello and happy Easter. Welcome to season two of Stuck in the Attic. This is the first episode and I have a wonderful guest, very good friend of mine. Uh, her story is full of inspiration. Uh, my good friend, Connie Dalton. Hi, Steve. Thank How you for having me. You? No, it's a pleasure. Um, so, I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever listened before, but this episode, uh, this podcast is basically anything inspiring, you know, uh, tales of inspiration, setting goals and, and getting to where you want to be in life um, and how you achieve that through ex your experience, your strength and your hope. So it could be anything from recovery to um, recovering from anything in your life, um, overcoming and achieving things. All right. Um, now, your story is one that I know personally uh, as I've been friends with you for a while and um, I thought that your story was incredibly inspirational and I think my audience would get um, tremendous um, insight into the problem that you faced and that you healed from and um, the problems that many of us are still facing now with this stupid virus that's out there um, and how to not only overcome something but now how to stay focused on being positive because this is like a really uh, bad time for people with anxiety you know mm -hmm. um, a lot of drinking and drugging will be escalated you know addiction and let's not forget the you know gorilla in the room and that's going to be some type of domestic altercation whether it's verbal or uh, some kind of emotional um, one-sided if not both-sided um, and physical uh, abuse that's probably going on a lot I'm hoping it's not but the fact of the matter is this times like this bring out bad in people you know so let's start with you what was your like what was your life like when you um, were a child you know growing up um, my childhood, I was very, very fortunate. I still am. My parents are still married. Mm. Uh, they've been married 60 this year. It's 60, uh, 54 years. Um, and they were, my parents have always been very loving and supportive. Um, they have always been there for me. And to this day, they're there for me and my sons. Um, never was abused. Um, there was no alcoholism with my parents. Um, I was fortunate enough where I grew up bilingually and biculturally, so my parents are deaf. So I am fluent in sign language, so I have another mode of communication and also biculturally. And uh, so I have two cultures that I'm blessed to be in. Um, I was a swimmer, I was an athlete, and my parent, my dad never missed a swim meet in 11 years. He was always there. And he didn't just sit in the stands, he got involved. He started out as a timer, and then he, um, he became an official, and he just got very involved in my swimming because it gave him something to do rather than just sit and watch for hours and hours. Because <laughs> swim meets can be very lengthy. But he wanted to be a part of it, and we were very... We became very, very close, and um, so I had a healthy, uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. I always had everything I needed, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go off to college and have an amazing experience there, and, um, and an amazing swimming career as well, something that I never even thought I could achieve, but I did. Um, some struggle in there too with a broken back and was able to overcome that, you know, twice, twice as strong and 
because I've always had the mindset, my, my parents instilled a mindset in me of if you put your heart and your mind into it, there's absolutely nothing that you can't do. And they were the ones that set the example for me because they were, they're deaf. And they grew up, you know, back then they didn't have interpreters and supportive services like they do now. The Americans with Disabilities Act provided that, but that wasn't until my generation um, in the 80s and 90s. So um, they didn't have note takers. They didn't have those support systems. So they had to do things on their own and make things happen for themselves, which translated into me being that tenacious person. And if I wanted something, I had to go after it. And if it wasn't working, I had to find another way. And it was always about making something of yourself, by yourself. It's the feelings of entitlement, I think, that really are kind of, I'm not gonna get off on mm -hmm. anything here, but just my opinion is a lot of times, people in general, when they feel entitled and they, they don't go after what they want, they're easily let down and it leads to a life of misery. Yes. So I definitely um, appreciate you know what you did and what you were taught you know it's like parenting done right you know as they say yeah and and i'm i brought that to the table with my sons we all three of us do martial arts and we're in a, a dojang that you have to earn everything and if you want better for yourself you have to look at yourself and you have to apply what you know and be open to learning and improving because without that you will never move forward and it's all based on you know, respect for oneself, respect for mm -hmm. others, and discipline. It's self-discipline, yeah, and self-love and respect. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, you're not teachable. Mm -hmm. You're not teachable. And that's, it's huge. You're never going to get anywhere in life if you aren't open to learning. Yeah. Whether it's from looking at yourself or having someone help you do that. So then you went to college mm -hmm. and you took swimming and you took uh, sign language in college, correct? I actually taught sign language in college. Oh. Yeah, I, my degree is in rehabilitation services, which is working with people with disabilities. My concentration was in deaf education and speech pathology and I minored in psychology. Mm -hmm. I was a swimmer. Um, and the year that I broke my back, I ended up co-teaching sign language, American Sign Language, with my professor that I ended up having as in one of my classes. So it was really cool to be able to teach my native language, but also alongside with one of my own professors, which was which was really cool. Um, so I've, I've been able to have that ability to pass along, you know, something that is a beautiful um, way of communication, but also a, a culture that not many people get to, to know and understand. No, they don't. And, and when I went to uh, college, <clears throat> sign language was one of the languages that you could take, and supposedly all the jocks took it because it was like the least. The le it was the. They said it was the easiest one for people to grasp. It is. Yeah, it's pretty easy. But it was. It was also not very well um, sought after because mm -hmm. I guess uh, there's only a select few that really 
try and put themselves out there and you have a personal experience so you you know you went for it and that's great mm -hmm. but most people aren't going to use that after you know and most people aren't going to use a second language anyway let's be honest like uh, how many you know what's the percentage of people that actually leave this country you know if you don't use spanish yeah. it's like you're not going to use anything else use it. yeah, yeah that's true that's so true. i definitely admire that um because it hit home for you mm -hmm. and you you sound like you uh you know really took it uh to the end as far as teaching yeah that's what actually brought me to New Jersey um, I got a yes. teaching job um, I was coaching at the University of Rhode Island I was an assistant coach there after I graduated from college um, I I was um, waitlisted for my master's degree which was was fine um, so I was able to take my experience and knowledge from being an NCAA you know, nationally ranked swimmer and being able to coach use with that experience. And um, from there, one of my, um, the parents, the father of one of our swimmers asked me, you know, learned that I had applied into graduate school and wanted to go into deaf education and speech pathology. And he approached me and said, I have a job that, that you're applying for. It's basically <laughs> what it ended up being. In Jersey. Yep. Yeah. And he told me about the job, which was teaching American Sign Language to fifth graders um, at the public school level. Because it was going to, instead of taking like Spanish or French or Mandarin or something, it was, they wanted to teach sign language. And that's an impressionable age. So that's probably where you're going to pick it up to eat. It's exactly. Actually, babies, infants is the prime time to teach okay. sign language because right. they don't have the motor skills, the fine motor skills so and verbal skills. They don't have the speech, they have the language, but they don't have the speech. So sign language is very, very easy for infants and toddlers to pick up. So needless to say, um, so I got the job in Jersey. Um, another woman and I, she taught fourth grade, I taught fifth grade. We designed the curriculum and implemented it. And, the program lasted three years and I ended up leaving um, for various reasons and I look back I do miss it but what was beautiful about it was I was able to bring my parents in and every year they would talk I had 400 students every year mm -hmm. and um, they gave them a personal insight as to who they are and some of the challenges they've had my parents graduated from college and made something of themselves and kind of inspired the kids to say, hey, listen, we have a disability, but it just means it's not a disability, it's a diffability. We have other things that are strengths, other you know, talents and offerings that are strengths that compensate for it. And just because you have, quote, a disability doesn't mean you can't do something. You just maneuver around it. Yeah. You still have a way to communicate. Exactly. And that's what really a lot of exactly. life challenges are is communication. And we all know that. You know? Yeah. And, and actually, I was telling this to somebody the other day that um, my godmother, who was deaf, mm. she had a partner. And uh, her partner was a doctor. It took her 17 years to get into medical school. Wow. And the one thing that held her back those 17 years was the fact that she was deaf because the medical schools didn't think she would keep up. Well, one school took a chance on her and she became a pathologist and she's an amazing, amazing doctor. So she, she proved so many people wrong and all those doubters. You know, I, I've learned not only from my parents, but looking back at my own life over 44 years, being an underdog, is only a title for a short time if 
if you don't want it to be. And it, it doesn't define you. You define your outcome. So it's, it's, been, a, it's a, been a really interesting journey. But during that time that I taught, um, I met my ex-husband, um, or my now ex-husband, um, and that's one of the reasons why I left teaching. I wasn't happy with teaching, yeah. um, and I, need, I wanted to go to graduate school um, full-time. So, um, I decided I was going to leave teaching and take some classes. I was already taking classes while I was teaching and coaching the high school swim team. So I had a full plate. Um, and that's where I met my now ex-husband. Um, and which led me to where I am today. Now you met him, right? Mm -hmm. Um, how long was the period of time before... There was some kind of hint that uh, this could be for real. And was it quick? Was it long? It was quick. Um, the beginning was slow, and then it was quick. Uh, I met him. I was out with a group of friends one night. He ended up coming over. We ended up talking, had some commonalities. He gave me his number. Now, I was working full-time as a teacher. I was going to school at night full-time, and I had three side jobs <laughs> to help me pay for everything from where I was living to my classes. So I was a little busy. Um, it took me six weeks to call him just because I wanted things, I was overloaded and I couldn't add anything more to my plate. And I knew something was up when I met him because there were some indicators in the conversation that made me go, this isn't coincidental. Um, then I needed to investigate and, and so I did. So I finally called him and a couple days later we went on our first date and we got along beautifully. Um, and that first date I knew, I, I, I knew that he was it. Um, the next day, it was either the next day or the day after I met his family. Uh, yeah, because it was a, it intended to be just a barbecue with his brother and his wife and their kids, kind of low key. And just before I left, it word got around and it ended up being the in-laws of his brother and then his parents showed up and the grandparents and yeah, the, the nieces and nephews. Yeah, there was like <laughs> 15 or so people. And I was like, wow, oh, this, uh, this is nice. Nice to meet everybody. It's sink or swim time. There it is. Um, and from there, it, it transpired very, very quickly. Um, I was seeing him every day. Um, he was very kind and very sweet, um, and he seemed very committed, uh, and we were at my sister's wedding. I, our first date was July, first week, it was like right around the fireworks, so it was 4th of July. And then by the time my sister got married a month later, he told me he loved me. And then his grandfather got sick, well, the grandfather was older and he had congestive heart failure. And um, he wasn't gonna last very long. And he, my ex-husband and I started talking about getting married and what the future might hold if we do that, so on and so forth. And then when his grandfather was uh, put on hospice, it wasn't long after that that uh, my ex-husband proposed to me. And of course I accepted. Uh, I knew it was coming, it was just a matter of when. Um, our families were very, very excited. My parents met his family. It seemed like this fairy tale, fast forward story. Uh, it was 
I don't, I don't even know how else to describe it. He like swept me off my feet very quickly. Um, and the engagement was about a year and a half long. We got, we got engaged and then the month after I moved in with him. And we, he, he had a fixer upper that he bought. So we worked on the house together, which was great. Learned nice. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> learned a lot. Yeah. Um, learned that I don't like tiling a floor. Um, but learned how to, you know, spackle plaster walls, always so fun. So we did everything, we did everything but the septic ourselves. So, um, and after a while we started talking about having a family. It took us a year and to, of trying and we were ready to throw in the towel and, um, and we got pregnant at that point. During that time, um, we got married in August, and a month after we got married was when the first flag started going up. Mm. And the first flag that went up was he came home, he was a police officer. Um, he no longer is a police officer, um, which never raised any flags for me um, because I don't, I'm one of those people where I don't let someone's job define who they are. Mm. Um, because a job isn't who you are. A job is, for me, a means to pay your bills. Um, who you are defines who you are on the inside, and you gotta give everybody a fair shake. That's what you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who you are outside and how you are interacting with people shows somebody's who they are on the inside. So um, his job didn't didn't sway me or anything in one direction or another. So needless to say, he was on night shift. He came home, he tried to sleep, and I was working at a car dealership. Um, I was a receptionist, and I chose that um, as an income because I could go to school at night and I wouldn't have any work to take home. It was kind of like light work during the day. If I needed to read while I was a receptionist, I could do that, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, it was perfect work for me. Um, <clears throat> so he couldn't sleep one night and he came out of the bedroom. I was working at noon um, and he looked terrible. And I asked him what was wrong and he, he really didn't answer me. And I just let him be. When people are ready to talk, they'll open up. Yeah, So. Exactly, and I've learned um, because I'm a thick-headed German and Ukrainian, and I got some Irish in me too. <laughs> we can be a little thick-headed at times. Yes, we can. Um, a little stubborn, thick-headed, you know it. Um, and so he actually he opened up to me, and he got jammed up at work. Um, and he told me this story where he was ordered to do something, and um, he did it because it was during his first year on the job. And um, he, uh, and it happened year, a couple of years before he and I met. So I, it was actually the year, the year before, year or two before he and I met. So it's not like I could, you know, go back in my own head and go, I remember when that happened. I had to trust him with his story. And I was married to him, so of course I trusted him on what he told me. Um, but what transpired after that? looking back it should have raised more flags giant red flag like a banner yeah but I didn't see it you never do when you're in love no no especially in a marriage because you commit to that person you go you have to yeah and I stood by him and um because 
you know, when you're raised to be a loyal person and that's in your DNA, it's just what you do. But looking back, the flag should have gone up, um, but he kept me from things. There were meetings um, and investigations that he wouldn't allow me to come down. And as a spouse, I was allowed to be there um, because I, you can't testify. They can't force you to testify against your spouses when you're in law enforcement. Oh, is that? Okay. Yeah. So, but he kept me from all that which never made sense to me, but I accepted it because I, I, I wanted to give him the space to navigate this on his own and just be supportive. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to push it because it, it was an extremely stressful situation for him. Um, and also during that time, we were trying to get pregnant. So it was this delicate balance that I walked. And in that time too, we of course had our spats um, and he would often walk out. And that's a pet peeve of mine. Um, you know, if you're gonna pick a fight or if you're gonna get into an argument, if you need to cool off and take a few minutes and, you know, that's one thing. But if you walk out of the house and, you know, I'm not gonna talk about this anymore and, and you know, start to control how things are gonna go, that's when I had a problem with it and I still have a problem with it. You know, everybody needs the time of cooling off, but you need to readdress it and with a clearer head. Um, but he never did, he just wanted you know, things his way and control things his way and keep me from, let me know what he felt I needed to know. Um, Sounds manipulative. Very, very. Um, And also during this time, I started to see more and more of who he is, was and is. Uh, He's still very much the same way. Um, If it's not about him or on his terms, then it's not a concern. Um, he was a, a hunter, an, an avid hunter, and he provided food for us. I learned how to hunt. I stepped into his world and I learned how to hunt and I already knew how to fish and, you know, and that's something that he and I did together and I enjoyed. Um, and I was on a rare Saturday morning, I was off from work and, uh, I asked if he and I, when he came out of the woods, would meet for brunch with me. And he said, no. Now, for me, to not work on a Saturday in the car business was unusual. So I, I kind of took a step back and I was like, why? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to be hunting. And I'm like, but you guys always come out of the woods and go out to breakfast. Why can't you go out to breakfast with me? We never get to do that. And he was like, well, I'm going to go to breakfast with the guys and I'm going to go back into the woods. And I was like, but I'm your wife and this is a Saturday that I have available. I would love to be able to, I I don't care, go to breakfast with you guys. I'll, you know, whatever, try to give him an opportunity and he wouldn't have it. So I started to see that it was about him. And when I approached him, when I was later on, when I was more, when I was less emotional and to approach it from a more logical perspective, he's, the, the one, one thing that stuck out in my mind was um, I was hunting long before I met you. And he made it clear that that came before me. And that hurt. That hurt. And, sorry. The other flag like that came up. Um, when I was pregnant with Wyatt, my older son, or our older son, and um, he only went to the to the first doctor's appointment. 
all the other ones I went on my own and already in our marriage I was alone in my marriage I did he he was about him and he lived his life and I ended up living my life because if he never stepped into my life um, we only went on one trip together two trips one was our honeymoon and one was to go see my parents because they lived down south um, so I stepped in his world but he never stepped in mine so I ended up saying you know what I'm gonna keep living my life if you want to join me you can join me if not then okay but I continued to do things with him because I was married to him and I wanted the marriage to work um, so even though I was alone in my marriage you know we still we had a marriage, I guess, but we were driving home from the first doctor's appointment and we were really excited and my godfather lived in a town on the way back home from my doctor's office. And I said, hey, why don't we, you know, swing by? I can email because my godfather's deaf. I was like, why don't I email my godfather and say if he's home and we can swing by? And we're driving along and I, re I, can, I can point out where what mile marker we were at the landmark and he said no we're not we're not gonna go and i just looked at him and, and stunned and i was like why huh yeah it was like one of those cartoons huh? <laughs> and uh and i said i asked why and he said because i don't want to yeah i've had baffling arguments like that before where you're just why like don't even there's no explanation yeah just the other it, person it, just doesn't merely just does not want to do it and and yeah, it's like we're not programmed that way no and that's so hard because i'm not even from this state and my only family at the time in this state was my godfather yeah. and he knew that and his whole family lives with within 10 miles from where we were living at the time so i was going out to yonkers to visit the rest of his family while he was working so if I was going out to Yonkers, an hour plus away, why couldn't he just come with me to swing by, you know? And it's not like they didn't get along. They got along great. It was just a matter of, it was about him, and if it wasn't what he wanted to do, then we just didn't do it. So flags kept going up, up and up and up. And... Sounds like his wants superseded your needs. Absolutely. Yeah, it's horrible. It, it was very lonely. It was very lonely, and that's why I, I felt so alone in the marriage. That's why I did things to make myself fulfilled. I, you know, started to run more, go on runs. I was a, uh, a swimmer, so, you know, I, I loved to run, and I was running, and I was going to the gym, and I was you know, would go exploring, you know, just to find some kind of happiness within myself to keep myself going because I was, I wasn't happy. And, um, so I had Wyatt and then, um, we knew we wanted at least two kids and, um, we, we weren't trying to have our younger son and he appeared. <laughs> oh, it's magic. <laughs> Well, how'd that happen? Yeah, so um, when I found out I was pregnant with him, it was like the day that I should have, you know, been on my cycle. So I just went, oh gosh. And we had a hard time conceiving Wyatt. And um, 
So when Levi came along, I was almost afraid to tell him because we wanted to wait another year. Yeah, good luck with that. Nature was like, yeah, nature was like, yeah, there's a higher power and this is the kid that is going to come when he wants to come. So when I told my ex-husband, he was so excited and it was that it was probably like a day or two later. I was in my kitchen and now the house that we were living in was a nice size house. It was over 3000 square feet. It was a four bedroom, three and a half bath. Um, and that's a whole nother story. Like that's the house that he wanted because it had hunting property on it. And I'm sitting there going, when the hell am I going to clean all this space? You know, because what happened was I was, our plan was that I was going to be an at home mom and, um, that I was, you know, just going to raise the kids and he was going to work. And the mortgage was based on his salary salary yeah. and everything we had it all mapped out but out of the blue from nowhere that didn't work out and I needed to work so I was where I started working again and I was able to take Wyatt with me to work and um, I took him with me there was a nanny at work it worked out beautifully and then when I would get home it was still me doing everything and he would come home and have a friend over and park himself on the deck and slug back a few beers while I was cleaning and cooking and bathing Wyatt and doing everything without help so it was it was rough and um but you know you just do it you know because it's just what you do you don't have a choice so I was married to somebody who was financially providing, but I was supporting, I was contributing, and I was pretty much raising our son by myself. And, and pregnant with it. And then I got pregnant with Levi, and when I told him, it was, you know, I was a little concerned, and we had another conversation, and I said, you know, I, I didn't quite plan for this to happen now I wanted to wait another year because our kids would be more than three years apart and because I was thinking about school and if they go to college and stuff like that like it's it's a farther time space my sister and I are all just shy of three years apart and you know it, it that's kind of what I had in mind yeah. um but in that conversation that's not what he had in mind he immediately came back without a second thought said well, I knew your cycle and I was ready for another one. And I stopped in my tracks and I just stared at him in disbelief because it was more than clear that everything was about him. Yeah. From our He's house. Like son. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. I just sat there like, wow, this is all about you. Like, I'm the one that gets fat, my boobs swell up to a double D. I'm lactating and up all night, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you were ready for, where was I in this, you know, equation here? So that kind of made me even take a step back even more and be like, okay, like this is, so as the pregnancy went on again, I was going to my doctor's appointments alone and still working you know, pregnant and taking Wyatt to work with me. And he was 
doing what he's doing and working and hunting and whatnot. And uh, he... I remember very clearly we were moving Wyatt's room. Uh, we wanted to keep Wyatt's nursery as Levi's and we were just going to move Wyatt into a bigger bed because he was going to be two and a half when Levi was born. So we were prepping Wyatt's room, Wyatt's new room. And he was painting and putting a chair railing up and he got frustrated and he came out and he started screaming at me just and you're the reason why I have high blood pressure and all this stuff and that was something that he said that truly resonated me with me because over the over the prior years he would point the finger at me and I was being blamed for a lot of things when things went wrong or finances or I don't know pick something if it was raining outside that was my fault you know you made it rain I know it's like, and it's still to this day it's it's no different to be honest with you and um now you said there was some kind of there's also some kind of physical yeah issues. well I was 40 weeks pregnant with Levi and um he was outside Wyatt was two and a half. I was sitting in my living room, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and it was 12 years ago last week. And uh, he had gone out to get a newspaper for me because I needed coupons <laughs> for my grocery shopping. Wyatt was playing in front of me, and he came home, and he um, dropped off the newspaper, and he was going to go outside and work in the yard. It was a rare Sunday that he wasn't working. And so he went into the kitchen and he said, I have to take a shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Which is most people's like, oh, why do you have to tell me that? Like, Honestly, I guess. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? So I looked at him and thank God I worked on a medic unit. Um, and say, my flags went up. No, my flag went up because a lot of um, elderly people when they feel they have to go to the bathroom they go to the bathroom and sit and push and they have a heart attack and die on the toilet get out of here oh my yeah Lord, i didn't know that yeah so the way he said it like i have goosebumps right now the way it's, he it said it it was it no he said i feel it like right here and he put his hand on his abdomen and then i thought that's your descending aorta and I said, don't go, sit down. And he, for once he actually listened to me <laughs> and he sat down and I watched him and I looked at the clock, it was 11.17 and I'm watching him and he's in a matter of minutes, his face changed and he's like looking around and I asked him, I'm like, what's going on? And he said, he said I feel like I have snow blindness. And I went, okay, okay, he's probably pre-ictal. He's probably going to have a seizure. There's nothing I can do. He's going to have it, and then I'll call the medics, and, you know, he'll get tended to, whatnot. So he, um, he gets up after a few minutes, and he goes into the kitchen, and he says, I think I need to take my blood pressure medication. And I said, don't take it, because if his blood pressure was low, and if 
He took his blood pressure medication. He was going to bottom out. And all I could see was, I have a two and a half year old son. I'm 40 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. He's going to go down. I'm going to be in the kitchen doing CPR, calling 911. This is not a scene I want in my life. Well, little did I know it was going to get worse at that point. So he took his blood pressure medication. And then, and by then it was 1137. And he sat down and he said, my leg is cold. And I immediately thought stroke. So I said, go get in the truck. And we only lived a few minutes away from the local hospital. So got into, I put Wyatt in the truck and I got um, his father over to the hospital. And many people criticized me um, and, and questioned why I didn't call the medics. And to this day, I am so thankful that I didn't call them because as much as I wanted to get him to the regional hospital that he ended up at, I was 20 minutes in my golden hour because you have to treat a stroke within the first hour to have your best possible outcome. And I was already 20 minutes in. And on the way, as I pulled into the hospital, our only medic unit in town was already there. So we would have waited even longer for help. So there's pros and cons to living in a rural area, and that's one of the cons. <laughs> so I got him there, and it was every few minutes, it was like Groundhog Day. My mom came down and um, took care of, of Wyatt because um, I couldn't bring him into the ER. And so when I went into the ER, he was, every few minutes, his brain was on reset. And he didn't know why he was there, who brought him, nothing like that. And the neurologist at the time thought that he had global amnesia. And I'm looking at this guy like, you're a fucking quack. You have no idea what you're talking about because I'm looking at his EKG and it's not his brain, it's his heart. So the um, cardiologist came in, um, ended up admitting him overnight. Now, divine source, I call divine source, I call him source, call, you know, God, whatever you believe in, whatever you call him, there's always a higher power at work. Now, I had, up until then, set things up where my healthcare proxy for when I deliver was my best friend. Because I always believed that somebody who is not a direct family member can tend to make more rational decisions if they aren't in healthcare. And my, I was closer to some of my closest friends than I am to some of my family. Um, And I knew that certain people would make the right decisions for me and my children if that needed to occur. So I chose certain people to be my healthcare proxies at that time because I knew that as much as my ex-husband could make those decisions, I want, I, some people get cloudy. So, um, and thankfully I did that because if I had chose him as my healthcare proxy and something were to happen to me in childbirth, I would have been screwed. <laughs> I would have been screwed um, and not what I would want for myself. Um, so needless to say, Um, I had already reached out 
to a friend of ours. He was like Kramer when he came into our house. Kramer from Seinfeld. I always had a pot of coffee ready when he came in. in the morning. He would just like walked in. <laughs> he walked in and be like, hey, what's up, you know? And I called him. I said, John, you know, my ex-husband, John is in the hospital. And, and uh, if anything happens, I need you to come over and just hang out with Wyatt. I'll have a pot of coffee ready for you. But I just need someone to be with Wyatt until like my parents or someone can get there. And he, and he was he was fine with it. Well, overnight after John was admitted, I um, I got a call at like oh, a divine intervention too. Was I had a pack and play, which is a portable crib, already in my truck, and um, I already had my bag packed because I was forty weeks in due on Friday. Ready to pop. Yeah, yeah. And this was a Sunday night into Monday morning, and. Um, at about 3.30, 3.40 in the morning, I get a call from the hospital, and they decided they were gonna fly him over to Morristown Memorial. And, uh, cause he was deteriorating. He was in ICU, and he was deteriorating very rapidly. Um, I ended up talking to him, and he was like, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So, flew out, I met uh, him over in the CCU at Morristown and not long after he coded. He coded for 10 minutes and was resuscitated. Um, they, in talking with the nurses who worked on him, um, they said that if they didn't see me, they would have let him go. Um, but they saw how pregnant I was yeah. and they needed to, they needed to save him. He, long story short, he went into um, open heart surgery. He, uh, had an, a type A and B aortic dissection, um, and he had open heart surgery. So he has a uh, not Kevlar, Teflon. No, Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex um, aortic aortic um, arch, and he has a mechanical valve. The next day, he wasn't waking up. They did a CT scan. He had a massive stroke. He went into liver and kidney failure. And he wasn't expected to live. And if he were to live, it, it was he was going to be in a vegetative state. So that was really hard for me because I was about to bring life into this world, and I I questioned how I could bring a life in and take it up. And it's one of the hardest things you have to face, but you have to look at the reality and. You also have to take a look and surrender because it's not in your control. That's the first time I ever learned that nothing is in your control and you just have to trust the higher power because it's not even, it wasn't even up to the doctors. You think you're in control? Yeah, you're not. You're not. You just have to surrender and let it go. And so, needless to say, um, he, when Levi was born, he decided he was going to wake up on the news. <laughs> so, um, and we were very grateful. You know, yeah. he, he learned how to walk again and learned how to swallow and eat. And um, the downside to all of that was because of the stroke, he, um, his already sparkling personality was exacerbated. And, um, and he became pretty abusive after he got home. Part of that was because of the stroke, 
because when you have a traumatic brain injury, there's a lot of filters that are removed. Um, and it's a, an adjustment to life too. Um, he wasn't able to work as a police officer anymore. Um, you know, and, and there's a bit, it's a major life change. So he, um, he started to get increasingly violent. And, you know, a lot of truth had started coming out. Um, there was past uh, incidents. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, he was hiding money and there was problems with our mortgage. Um, you know, just more and more truth started coming out about what was going on that I didn't know about. Um, and that was just the beginning. So I stuck it out with him as long as I could. And he became more and more violent. Um, he left Levi in the truck alone in a snowstorm. He, you know, kicked down a baby gate and scared the crap out of Wyatt. And then the straw that broke the so camel's... Violence. It was violence. It was violence. It was aggression. It was emotional. It was everything. It was just coming to... Just in general, not even towards you. It yeah. Like. Yeah. And then one night he directed it at me. And I felt this was coming on. And so I started to take up boxing. And... Um, and so I was training because I wanted to be able to protect myself. And I went out with a girlfriend one night. We went to a concert. He knew who I was with. She picked me up. We went out. He talked to her. So like that also raised flags too because he was like keeping tabs on me. Now at that time I was working three jobs to keep us afloat and pay the mortgage. It's the, it's the whole personality though. If you, yeah. see, if you see it now, like yeah. I'll, I can point it out to you. If he's keeping tabs on you, yeah. he probably was already. Yeah. But he mm-hmm. he's lost his control from the job he yes. was in. Now he can't he feels like he probably can't control anything. Right. So now he's gotta grasp it. Right. You know. So he came at me one night accusing me of having an affair and um, got physically violent with me and that was it. I had had enough. Um, a couple days later I made Didn't the decision. Did he pull a knife on you? He did later on during the divorce. Um, yeah, he, he got worse after I filed for divorce. Um, he, he, was, he was very angry and didn't understand and didn't want to understand why I finally stood up for myself. And that's what um, narcissistic um, narcopaths really can't handle is... You have self-respect yeah, and you're not going to take it anymore. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They, once you take back your control, it sends them out of control because they can't control you anymore. And they stop at nothing to get that control back and its course of control. And you won't believe it until you go through it. No, if I, my divorce was a year and a half of hell. He withheld the kids from me. He, and, and of course, and he would withhold them from me on like a Friday afternoon and would make me drive 25 miles out of my way to go get them because if I didn't I wouldn't see them all weekend because because, it's, because the kids were a weapon for him yeah. to use to hurt me and he's he still, probably nice on the phone he was probably nice in text messages and then when you go to do something then it's like I got it's like I got your yeah it's, it's like a bait and switch yeah I call I nicknamed him shark for a while because he would like lurk and then attack out of a blind spot when he was really nice. Like you get nice one minute and then attack the next. Well, I had that with, I had where I would get nice phone calls and nice text messages. And then when I would get into the, the uh, 
company of this person, it would be like a switch went off. Yeah. Like now I can treat you like shit. And you're like, what What the fuck's going on here? Um, what is this? You know? And I don't, I've never done that. So I don't know. Right. It's not in who you are. No. And my kids. I'm much better in person. I'm the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And, and. My kids even experienced that. It was last fall, last late summer, that my kids finally came out with their experience after Wyatt was physically abused um, and had marks on him. Yeah, and I didn't know what was going on because my kids are very loyal. They won't throw anybody under the bus unless it is like the absolute right thing to do. And they just kept quiet because they saw how their father was, but they, they, we were in an, a time of peace and amicability, if that's even a word, but um, they didn't want to disrupt that because they never knew that before. All they've known is just violence. And, and so when this all came out, it was, and you know, I, I was so upset yeah. and it still obviously upsets me is that they were sleeping together at his house in the same room with the door closed and locked, locked and they barricaded themselves with a chair because they didn't know who they were going to get one minute to the next and that hurt me so much because i lived that for years he would follow me he would uh, i swore at one point when during the divorce our house was bugged because he would repeat things that i you know that i would say to somebody on the on my cell phone um very loud just, towards the corner of the by the lamp? Yeah. It, 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 so I would have my phone conversations outside during my divorce. I mean, it was it was terrible. Did he say the date before he repeated it? Just so I could mark it down. <laughs> I, June 23rd. God, uh, uh, just so you know, on such and such, you know, it just was crazy. So it was so hard for me to hear my son's exact fears that and experiences that I experienced. And... I spent a lot of time doing self-healing over the years. I was dragged... Yeah, let's get into the aspect of, of the healing yeah. portion. I was dragged into court three times in two years for full custody. And I was... for The first time I was in court, um, I was still a very bitter and angry person because a lot of his truth came out. Um, that he... Uh, was the things that he was doing behind my back, the truth about how he got jammed up at work. Um, that was a very calculated move on his part. Um, it was manipulative and vindictive, and it was the farthest from the story that he told me. Um, so I was very bitter and angry, and by the time I got to in between the second and third custody case, which the whole from the three custody cases were within two years, I made myself sick to my stomach. Um, I I had gotten so bitter and angry that one day um, he had registered Wyatt for I think it was soccer, and we're supposed to. This was after the divorce was final, and in our agreement, we have to mutually agree on things regarding the kids. And um, but he would just arbitrarily sign them up and make me agree and take them. And of course, that's part of the control issues that narcopaths have. And um, and that's something I always fought, and one of my defenses in my my custody. 
was that you know you have to in order to effectively co-parent you need a level of cooperation and I I would never get that from him. So when I read the email and and the, the paper was signed and what he was going to do, the like, kids were going to do this and that. I got so mad and Wyatt is sitting in front of me and he wanted help with his homework and I said, yes, just give me a minute. And I shot off an email back to him and it was not, I'm not proud of that email to this day, but it was, it contained, well, if you give me the boy's schoolwork that you withhold because we're supposed to share information, including the kid's schoolwork, he was taking the kid's schoolwork. um, So I couldn't be involved. Um, and that's alienation. Um, I said, if when you give me the kids' schoolwork from the past week, I'll give you the boys' soccer gear because he bought the soccer gear. And as soon as I hit send on that email, I felt sick to my stomach, and I went to the bathroom, and I threw up. And at that point, I was like, I am poisoning myself. Well, it's, not only that, it's like you, the kids, you know, what are you using the kids... I was just as bad as he was. Yeah. And it happens. I because I allowed it. And I stopped at that point. He didn't. Exactly. And I said, This is I gotta I this can't happen anymore. And so I took a look at myself and I went on a very spiritual journey. And instead of looking at him as, you know, how can he do this and and trying to wrestle with why he is the way he is, I threw myself into myself. I started to educate myself about, it started um, parenting with a difficult person. Well, I, I got about two chapters into the book and I wanted to burn it because difficult was not the word. Um, and then I started to just come across articles and literature and books about um about dealing with a narcissist and then I started learning about the levels of narcissism and and control and abuse and you know learning more about domestic violence and and we had um, talked at length about yeah you're the one who brought it to my attention I mean I knew the word existed but I didn't really know truly what it was you can't rat you because I never experienced it before I had never yeah and and once you have that door that opens and the light starts to come through once you peek into that, it it like it throws itself. Yeah, like, and yeah. you're overwhelmed. Like, holy shit! Why didn't I see this? Because it's not in your realm of being. Well, it's not only that, but you know, you don't want to see it. I think you're in a state of denial. That's yeah. where I was. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and it's understandable when you're in it. You you can't see the forest through trees. You know, and so I was in that for years before I got sober. That's mm-hmm. you know. I was I I was on the other side of that door, yeah. And I was looking, trying to look at myself, and that door was like just locked, slammed yeah. shut. And I was I was holding it from the other side shut. You yeah. Know? That was even worse because I had one side that was good and one side that was narcissistic. Yeah. And that the narcissistic menta- mentality took over because that's what addiction is like. Mm-hmm. It's narcissism at its finest. And then you open that door, and then I go through it with someone. Once I go to the other side and. and you are the one who brought it to my attention and actually educated me on what it truly is like. I'm like, oh my God, so many things I could have yeah. done. You don't know until you, until you're, you know. Now, how do you, like, we got about five minutes left. How do you, um, what do you say to someone during this time, this coronavirus, um, 
this quarantining, this isolation. What do you say to, to you know, men, women, and children that are in, that um, could be, they could be it's narcissist, or they could be the other side, or it could be just a situation where you know couples with the kids involved and everyone's just fighting. Like, you know, I don't have children. Um, I'm not married. So I don't really have to argue with anyone. My dog doesn't really argue with me too much anyway. Um, what do you have to say to these people that normally wouldn't be abusive, that could find themselves sucked into a negative state, you know, that, that as Eckhart Tolle, you know, he, he says like that, the pain body of the brain, the part of the brain that focuses on a negative. Yeah. You can so easily go there when you're sitting alone or you're sitting next to your wife or your husband, you know, you're so in tune with each other that it's almost like you're you're kind of alone because your thoughts, how do you not get both sucked into that? And how does like, I mean, you could have people that are abusive that never were abusive before in times like this. Yeah. What do you say to people like that? It's a matter of being self-aware. Um, I've, I've, I was taught to always think before I speak and I teach my kids to think before they speak. And you and I have had many, many conversations where sometimes you just have to stop yourself and say, take a breath. It's all about taking a breath. And that's where the martial arts for us comes into play because martial arts is not about what you do on the mat, it's the mastery of self. And it's a process. So you have to be aware of what your, where your internal vibration is. And if you're not aware of the internal feeling that you have, you should err on the side of caution of just keeping your mouth shut and waiting. See, I, I, when, I, when I walk into a room mm-hmm. with people I don't know, I don't open my mouth. Yeah. I just sit there and I, I kind of like, what's this person about? What's their personality? Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling what you're talking about. What's this person's, what's the vibe in a room? I don't want to come into a situation and be an asshole. Right. Not that I am an asshole, mm-hmm. but I, have, I should know these people first a little bit and feel them out well you have to know not to cut you off but you have to know yourself if you know yourself first that's when you can truly know your audience and you in order to be effective in your communication you always have to know your audience so I've also learned that everybody and I saw this quote when I was 17 and you have to remember that every person that you interact with they've Loves, loves something or someone, is afraid of something, or has lost something or someone. And even to this day, with my ex-husband and his alcoholism now and his yeah, abusiveness. Yeah, I didn't even touch him. Yeah, didn't even touch him. We might have to do a second, oh. second segment here. Um, but he is now an alcoholic. and um, Explains a lot, too. It yeah, does. it does. It does. Because um, narcissistic behavior, um, well, or what you describe it as. Self-indulgent. That's, selfish, that's an addictive. That's addictive. That's an addictive personality who does that. Yep. Very addictive person. Yep. So in closing, what would you, you got a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say to the people listening? I never set out to be a single mom. I set out to be the best person and mother and daughter and sister and friend that I can be. And I couldn't do that and unfuck my head until I looked at myself Mm. and my patterns of behavior and admit that there were ugly parts of me that I needed to change and address. And it's hard fucking work to do it 
and it is painful. It is excruciating. But once you look at those ugly parts, those dark, sinister parts, they're really wounds that you need to touch and get intimate with and heal them in order to transform. And once you do that, it becomes a beautiful process. And you have times where you go back and it's painful again, but you get through them if you put in the work. And my kids are learning that, and we all are screwing up along the way. But if you're willing to look at yourself and, and do the work, you can transform, and your life is so much better. I agree. You're a great, you're a great friend, a great inspiration. And I hope everyone listening to the show got something out of it during this uh, almost what seems to be unbearable uh, isolationism and quarantining. But uh, this too shall pass. Connie, I want to thank you again for coming on and uh, everyone have a blessed uh, Easter. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Connie Has Risen Part 1 on the second part of my podcast with her. I'll talk about her role in the health field as it currently pertains to the coronavirus and quarantining, how important it is for self-reflection and unfucking yourself, and constant meditation to improve your life. Thank you. Out.